0: All right, open up to Exodus chapter 17. We have been all over the Bible in the last month, and I've loved it because we're following a theme, the theme of Meribah, the theme of water from the rock. And I told you that we would just do three messages on that, but we're actually going to do a fourth. And the reason that we're going to do a fourth message on Meribah um, is because last week I felt like I tried to wedge too much in at the end. And there's more to be said, and I don't want to miss out on it now that we're all sort of up to speed on the images and the ideas um, of, this, of this part of Israel's story. I want to take one more week and, um, and get the rest out of it that God has for us. And so this, this last message, this fourth part, we're going to go back uh, to the beginning of Israel's desert wanderings. And we're gonna look at the first time that God brought water out of a rock. Do you remember, we've been, we've been saying that God did this twice. He did it at the beginning of their journey through the desert, and he did it right at the very end, right before they went into the promised land. He did it for the first generation and for the second generation. And four weeks ago, we started by looking at uh, Numbers chapter 20, which is the second time that he did it. And that was the time when Moses um, disobeyed God's instructions and was kept out of the promised land. That's where we started. Then we went to Psalm 95, which unpacks this story a little bit more, and then to John 7 last week, which is the culmination of all of this. So we're going back to Exodus 17 and the first time that God brought water from a rock. And it's different. It's a little bit different from what happens in Numbers 20, and we're going to get into all of the details um, and, and you already know these images and these ideas, so I don't, ha- I don't need to rehash all of it. Um, but there is one more lesson that we can apply um, to our lives from this, from this story, from this thread. So let's go ahead and read Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Page 69, Page 69 right in the front, if you're using the Pew Bible. So let's read Exodus seventeen one through 7. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Okay, so you see your outline there in your notes. Your outline is is God in the dock. This is the the people's complaint, verses one and two. And we have God on the rock, um, the Lord's response to their complaint, verses three through six, and then God among us, our salvation, verse seven. So first of all, I wanna notice three things about the people's complaint. And the first thing is its timing, the timing of the complaint. Now what's really interesting here is this is immediately after leaving Egypt. It's only a couple of months after crossing the Red Sea and coming out and into the wilderness and the, and the images of the, the plagues and the image of the Red Sea parting are fresh in their mind. And immediately there's this pattern of complaint. It's very interesting actually chapter 15 of Exodus is is the song of Moses. It's this beautiful song of praise that they sing on the far shore of the Red Sea when they make it through. And they sing this song. And then the rest of the chapter is their first complaint. And it's chapter um, 15, verse 24. And their first complaint is actually about water. And then their second complaint complaint is about food. And then their third complaint is about water. So there's this Pattern And they're really concerned about food and water, as you would be. In chapter 15, verse 24, it says, The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we, what shall we drink? And then in 16, verse 3, it says, that The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And it says that they, the same thing that they grumbled, says that they grumbled. That's actually in verse two. Same word as 1524. In verse two, it says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. So we have the word grumbling in chapter 15 over water. We have the word grumbling in chapter 16 over food. And then we get to chapter 17 and look at verse two, it says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Okay, we're going get to get to that in just a minute. But what's interesting, what I want to note about the timing of their complaint is the fact that when you think about it, is, is there a more spectacular miracle than God parting the Red Sea? That's, that's it, right? That is the pinnacle of miracles. It's like the, I mean, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the incarnation of Jesus are the central miracles at the heart of Christianity. But this miracle, nothing this large scale ever happened. This was it. Millions of people witnessed it. Millions of people experienced it. This is as, as grand and as large and as spectacular of a miracle as you ever hope to see. And they have just been saved by God's own hand. And now they're complaining about their conditions. Now, this reminds me, actually, of, uh, of Luke chapter 16, verse 31. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember it? The, there's a rich man who does not believe. He does not have faith, and he dies in his unbelief. And he goes to, he goes to the torment side of Sheol. And then there's a, there's a righteous man who also dies and goes... Um, and goes to the paradise side and and in Jesus is telling the story it's very unique but but in sheol he says he asked i believe it's Abraham to go he asked Abraham to go send somebody tell my five brothers to believe tell them that it's all true so that they don't wind up here as well and Abraham says something really interesting to him he says they have they have God's word He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if a man should rise from the dead. And the point is that spectacular miracles are not what keep faith alive. You may think to yourself, because I've thought this before, boy, if if only I could see the Red Sea parting like that, then I'd have no trouble, right? If only something like that would happen in my life, Oh, I'd be set. I'd have no problem believing from then on. That's a lie. That's not true. And we see it's not true because they've just experienced this. They have walked through an ocean on dry ground. And two or three months later, they're, they're bringing this accusation against Moses and therefore against God. So it's, it's not spectacular miracles that we need to feed our faith. It's the presence of God himself and his word that we need. That's the first point. And that has to do with the timing of their complaint, the fact that it was so immediate after leaving Egypt. But now we come to the nature of their complaint. The nature of their complaint. And I already showed you how in in 1524, it says they grumbled over water. In 16, verse two, they grumbled over food. And then in verse 17, verse two, it says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Now, we need to pay very close attention to the words here to to understand just what's going on. The first two, grumble, well, the first one that's used twice. When the people grumble, that's that's a kind of a catch-all word for the sound that we make, the kinds of things that come out of our mouths when we're unhappy and we're uncomfortable and we're exhausted, being human, we have these, we feel the weight of our physical life bearing down on us sometimes, and it comes out of our mouths as grumbling. That's what that word means. But the word choral here could also be translated dispute. This is a different word. And that's why it's translated differently, because it's not the same verb. The word here is actually a judicial term. Most of the places it's used, this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, refers, it refers to bringing a court case against somebody, an accusation, a formal accusation, a kind of a lawsuit. That's what we're talking about here. So the people have already said we're thirsty and they got their water and they said we're hungry and now manna is coming. And then for the second time, they're saying we're thirsty and we're going to die. And they actually make a a real case out of it. And it says that they accuse or they bring this dispute against Moses. So the the word here, it could be anything from just a casual accusation to actually like a carefully planned lawsuit. That's what we're looking at. So in essence, what you need to understand right here is that they put Moses on trial. Hasn't taken them very long to get to the point where they're ready to condemn him and he says in verse 4, he says, they're close to stoning me. So he's on trial. And their accusation is actually in verse 3. You brought us up out of Egypt just so that we would die out here. This is treason. They're accusing him of treason against his own people. And they're ready to kill him over it. It's not, we're not talking about mob justice, by the way. In verse four, it says they're almost ready to stone me. He means that they've almost reached a verdict. He doesn't mean that they're about ready to drag me out and kill me in their frenzy. He means that they're actually proceeding with this in an orderly fashion, and they're just about ready to say that I'm guilty of treason and put me to death out here. God, what do you want me to do with them? So that is, their, that is what's happening in this scene, and it's over this issue of water. But look how Moses responds when they say, give us something to drink. In verse two, he says, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? He actually takes, he receives their, their accusation and what he does immediately, as he should, is he points their attention towards the Lord. Do you see it? He says, you're angry at me because I'm the one standing in front of, in front of you. But there's a parallelism. This is actually a little piece of poetry. It's not set apart as poetry in most of our translations. But why do you dispute with me? And why do you test the Lord? It's in parallel. And what that means in the Hebrew is that Moses' leadership is identical with God's leadership. He's saying, I'm his servant. There aren't two leaders. There's one leader and Moses is just the servant. That's what he's saying. So if you accuse me, it's not just me that you're accusing. If you put me on trial, it's not just me who's going on trial. You're about to face your God because he brought you here. And Moses, as we know, is is the people's mediator. So if if they put him on the stand, then God's right there with him on the stand. That's what this means. And that's what's happening here. That's the nature of their complaint. Now, we do the same thing, don't we? Don't we do this? When things get difficult or bring an accusation, we wouldn't, we're, our theology is too good to say it out loud, but doesn't our heart want to do this when God is not showing up for us in the way we would hope or the way we expected? Only in our day and age, in our culture, this never, this never really stops. It's really interesting, back it's probably been 60 or 70 years since C.S. Lewis wrote his, his essay called, uh, entitled God in the Dock. God in the Dock. And that's the title of this section of the sermon as well. But C.S. Lewis said something really interesting. He said that this accusatory way of approaching God, it was the greatest barrier he ever encountered. And he talked to thousands of people and he wrote thousands of letters in his lifetime, trying to convince people of the truth of the gospel, and he said that this this accusatory tone was the most significant barrier he ever came across in sharing the gospel. He said modern people, and this is a long time ago, this is six or seven decades ago. He said modern people have entirely lost the sense of our sinfulness, and so for for modern people, he said. Well, I'll just read you his quote. He said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Okay? And so what I'm trying to tell you is that we live in a day and age when this is the default, but for them, this was rare. For them, this was extremely rare. If they were approaching God like this, it was because they felt they had a legitimate case. It was because they felt they had a legitimate reason to accuse God of being reckless and careless towards them because this wasn't the normal way of thinking for people in that day and age. And Ed Clowney, he's a a former seminary professor at Westminster in Philadelphia. Ed Clowney... um, He had a a brilliant passage in his book entitled The Unfolding Mystery, which I encourage you to read, but he writes about this episode, and then he says that throughout the Bible, Meribah, the word Meribah, designates Israel's lawsuit against God, and that's how God uses the term later on as well. So now we come to the merit of their complaint. We see that they feel like they have a good case against God. Do we agree with them? Let's look at that next. Let's examine the evidence. You ever been thirsty before? I already asked this question a few weeks ago. We've all felt that, right? It's painful. But have you ever been thirsty in a place where there's no water and you didn't bring anything, any with you? That's, that will make you panic. Will it not? That is a real crisis, isn't it? The Israelites, these people need fresh water or they are going to die. They're not exaggerating. They're not exaggerating about this. We're gonna die and our kids are gonna die and our livestock. And when you look at verse one, it it says that the people moved on to this place called Rephidim that had no water By the Lord's direction, that's what it says. It says that he brought them here. He brought them here. Somehow it's God's will that these people are going through this. Somehow it's God's will that these people are thirsty. And you know what hits me the hardest about this? When I look at what they say in verse three, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Why did we even leave? We're gonna die. But not just us, they say, look at this. And our children. Can you imagine watching your kids die of thirst? Think about the children, they're saying. And it's like they can hear, you can can hear the children in the background moaning in pain. We're thirsty. We are thirsty. This is, This is, they're panicked. This is bad. This is really bad. And the people do seem to have a good case. I think we can agree on that. They at least, they at least can't see how God or Moses for that sake, um, for that case is is going to get them out of this. They don't know how this is going to go. They can't see a solution to this problem. They think if we started walking now, we'd never make it back to where there's water. They're stuck, they're going to die. Now, here's your principle for this section. When the Lord leads us to these dry places, we can either put him on trial in our hearts or we can remember what he's already done and hang on to his goodness. Those are our two options. It's not wrong to turn to God and ask, what are you doing here? Why have you brought me to this place? Why are we here? It's not wrong to ask that question. But there's two ways to ask it. And one is to accuse him of not seeing you, of not caring, of being reckless and harsh with you. And the other way to ask that question is remembering how good he's been to you until now and anticipating more of his goodness. That's what a faithful response to suffering looks like. And faith does not fix itself on a specific outcome. We don't have to know what the plan is to believe. We just have to anticipate that God is going to do something and whatever he chooses to do will be beautiful and life-giving. And that's, that's unfortunately the people choose the first path and they put God on trial. So now we're gonna see how God responds to this in verses three through six. And I wanna point out just two things about the Lord's response, just to show you how good he is to us. Because we're no different than Israel here in this passage when we go through hard times. And in his response, we see his patience and his grace. We see his patience and his grace. When Moses brings this to the Lord, in verse five, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff of which you struck the Nile and go. What he's doing here. What he's doing here and how we see his patience is he's, he's going along with the people's plan, with their accusation. God has a right, right here. He has the right to destroy them because they're being rebellious. They're accusing him of not caring. When he's just saved them, he brought them through the Red Sea. He has a right to destroy them, but instead he says, okay, if they want a trial, Let's give him a trial. And God says to Moses to take his staff. Remember his staff. What was it? What did he do with it? Yeah, the Red Sea. But also all of the plagues of Egypt. Right? They were done with his staff. The staff was the sign of his authority and the instrument with which God struck Egypt. It's the instrument of God's judgment against Egypt. And so when God tells Moses, you know, the people are are grumbling. They want a lawsuit. And God tells Moses, go get your staff. This isn't good for them. This could be really bad for them. Go get your staff. He says, with that staff in your hand, pass on before the people as their leader. That means let them know you're still in charge. Let them know that you're still leading this journey. Pass on before the people with your staff in your hand. You're still leading. And then look at the third thing. He says, he says uh, in verse six, no. In verse five, he says, take with you some of the elders of Israel. Do you see that? That's your jury. Literally, that's what that is. That's your jury. So he's got his staff He's passing in front of the people and he's taking a jury with him. He's, they're gonna convene a courtroom. Do You see it? That's what's happening here. So you want a trial? Okay. God's leading up to a moment of judgment. He's, he's setting it up. He's setting it up for judgment. Now, I talked to you about this a couple, couple of months ago. It's called this, this Scalia principle, Antonin Scalia. When he was in school, he was taking a, a literature class. And, and one of the kids in his class was beginning to, I think they were talking about Macbeth or Hamlet or one of these great works of Shakespeare. And this kid was starting to talk about how dumb it was. And his, uh, his, his teacher, who was a priest in Boston, he um, stopped the class and he said, Mr., when you read Shakespeare, Shakespeare's not on trial, you are. That's the Scalia principle. What that means is that every time sinners put God on trial, we're not revealing anything new about who God is. All we can do is reveal what's in our own hearts. That's it. So what it looks like, if you just stopped there and you read this with Jewish eyes through an ancient people's lens, what you would get is you would see that the people had accused God of this, of, of this thing, of, of treason, of mistreating them, bringing them out here to die. And God had told his servant, go get your staff. This is bad. This is bad for them. If Moses lifts up his rod against the people of Israel, the way that he lifted up his rod against the people of Egypt, they don't stand a chance. It looks like God is going to smash these people. He's going to judge them. He's going to condemn them and put them to shame. He may destroy them right here on the spot. Some of them are going to die. The scene is all set for judgment. It's a courtroom. But then something wildly unexpected happens. Something completely wrong happens. And it's in verse 6. And God says this, behold, I will stand before you. And what's wrong with that statement? What's wrong with that? In the Bible, the judge sits and the accused person stands. And God says, I'm gonna stand before you In the presence of the people who are guilty of unbelief and rebellion, God stands in the place of the condemned. He identifies himself with the rock by standing on it. And then he tells Moses to strike the rock. So your principle here is that God takes the blow that his guilty people deserve. We deserve that. God takes it for us. In 1960, the, uh, World War II had been over for 15 years, but the trials following World War II were just beginning to wrap up. The war crimes trials and the horrors of the Holocaust were coming to light. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living through that? Can you imagine being a German person living through that? And you didn't know what was being done in your name. And this was happening. And there was a Lutheran pastor named uh, Gunther Rutenborn. And I know I have a German last name, but I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Gunther Rutenborn. And he, he wrote a play. He wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. And he didn't just write it, he actually staged it in Berlin as these trials were coming to light and the newspapers were full of these atrocities, things that had been done in these people's backyards. And in this play, Rutenborn, he has his characters grapple with the question, who's to blame for all this suffering? Who's to blame? There's this cast of characters from, there's a queen, there's a, There's common people, there's a a German soldier. Who is to blame for all of this, for all of this suffering that has occurred? And as the play goes on, the people gradually come to the conclusion that it wasn't my fault, I'm not the one. I was following orders. I was just doing what I was told. I was just playing my part. I didn't know what was happening. It wasn't my fault. And they go and they go and they go and they finally reach the conclusion that God's responsible. God's responsible for all this suffering. And there, the play culminates with this. It says that God, the people, they gather, they convene a trial just like what we have here. And 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 the conclusion of the play is that God is sentenced to become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself shall die and lose his son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And that was the sentence that's pronounced against God in this play. Do you remember when the, the people said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? Think of the children. God himself would give up his son who was broken like a rock and pour it out so that we can have life. And by standing in front of the people like this and taking their judgment, God is saying to them, Someday my own son will hang on a cross in front of you and say, I thirst. That's what God is saying to them. You think I don't care about your children? You think I don't care about what you're going through? You think I don't know what it's like to suffer? The crises of this life, God is showing us right here that the crises of this life are nothing to laugh about. He does not wink at our suffering. He doesn't take it lightly. He stands right in the middle of it with us. Sometimes these things feel like they're really gonna kill us. It can feel like that. But God does not in any way make light of the suffering of his people. And this story, this story is given to you and me so that we would know that God does care about our needs in this life. And that he does take care of us throughout all the days of our lives. That's what's happening. He had every right to destroy them, but not only does he not destroy them, he says, I will take the blow that you deserved. Now look at verse seven as we wrap up. And I just wanted I I just want to end with one glorious truth about our salvation. Because in the end in the end, water does flow from the rock. The people are saved to live another day. And their physical material need is met. But there's some crucial information that's provided in verse 7. It's kind of like the kicker at the end of the story. Look at how the passage ends. It says that the the people tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Anyone ever asked that question before? Is the Lord among us or not? That was the content of their accusation. The content of their accusation was that God God had left us behind. He brought us out here to die and now he's gone. God is not with us. That's what they said. Can we sympathize with them? Let's go a little bit deeper. They were just getting to know this God. This God who said, I'll deliver you and then brought them through the Red Sea. Maybe this was a God who loved the glory of of bringing them out of Egypt but not the drudgery of meeting their needs. You ever think about that? Maybe he was the kind of God who loved winning battles, but really didn't care about whether they had water or not. That's one thing to think about. Another thing is maybe, maybe, now that God had delivered the people, the rest was up to them and they were on their own. I think that's far more likely. Is the Lord among us or not? Is he going to do something or is it up to us? Because if it's up to us, we're going to die. Is he with us? God had saved them from Pharaoh, but was he going to save them from their thirst? Is he going to do something now? The people doubted. This is what's going on. They doubt that God's salvation is which they had seen and they were not denying. They were doubting that that salvation would carry them all the way home. That was the specific doubt that they had. And I'll tell you what, we do the same thing. Here's how. We act like now that God has saved us from our sin, we know he's forgiven us. He's brought us out of Egypt. We know we get it. Is he gonna abandon us in the harsh conditions of this life is he going to leave us out here hang us out to dry will he save us now the way that he saved us before and will he keep saving us all the way to the promised land it's a very good question and we act as if the gospel was just something that happened back then don't we We don't necessarily believe that it's something that's active, it's happening right now to me. We believe that it's something that already happened, that's how I got saved, but the rest is up to us. But look at this, okay? Look at this with me. The same God who walked them through the Red Sea on dry ground was now going to be with them all the way home. That's what he's saying here. That's what he wants them to know. And the point is this. The gospel is not only the dry path through deep waters. It's also the water we need in the dry places of life. Let me say that again. The gospel is not only the dry path through deep waters. The gospel is also the water that we need to keep us alive in the deserts and the dry places of this life. And our God provides both. And it's the same salvation. It's the same salvation. The basic message, because we're wrapping this up this week, the basic message that I want you to take away from the story of Meribah is that when we find ourselves asking, where is God? Is he with us? Has he left us? Are we on our own? When we find ourselves asking that question, we are right where he wants us to be. And he's about to bring life out of brokenness. So let me ask you, what what in your life is breaking? What in your life that you're facing is something that feels like it's going to kill you? Like you can't bear the weight. This is a real crisis. This is no laughing matter and I don't see a way out. Because that's where the life is gonna come from. That Jesus was the true rock who was broken so that our life could pour out of him. And because he did that, life comes from broken things. And not just a little bit of life either. Last week we read Ezekiel 47. Remember that? Where the water's flowing out of the temple. And I love, I love the picture there. There's there's an angel measuring the water with him, the depth of the water. And it says, he took me out a thousand cubits from the temple and the water was ankle deep and a thousand more cubits and it was knee deep and a thousand more cubits and it was waist deep and then a thousand more cubits. And he says, like, you, it was deep enough to swim in. You couldn't get to the other side and you can never get to the other side of what God pours out in the broken places of your life. When you hang on to his goodness, in the midst of suffering. God will flood that place with life and it won't come from anywhere you expected it. Let's pray.